on today's story beat ask yourself this question is this gig is this move is this in alignment with what i think i'm here to do and is it in the direction of my vision this is story beat with steve cuton a podcast for the creative mind Storybeat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today, the brilliant singer-songwriter Megan McDonough, has been performing around the United States for more than four decades on stages as varied as Carnegie Hall, the Birchmere, Wolf Trap, and more. Megan wrote her first song at the age of 11 and landed her first record deal by the time she was 14 after winning a local big break talent contest sponsored by local radio station WLS. The label was Wooden Nickel, for which she released four albums between 1972 and 1974. She's gone on to release a total of 15 solo albums. By age 17, Megan was the opening act for John Denver at Carnegie Hall. She has also opened for acts like Steve Martin and Harry Chapin. Megan played Patsy Cline in the musical Always Patsy Cline. She wrote and performed a one-woman cabaret show called An Interesting Bunch of Gals, in which she pays tribute to eight artists who influenced her, including Edith Piaf, Billie Holiday, and Joni Mitchell. Megan is perhaps best known for being an inaugural member of the group The Four Bitchin' Babes. She's also known for delighting audiences with her mixture of heartfelt and humorous songs, and she's toured with her show dedicated to the ones I love, great women singers of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, honoring the greatest female singers of a generation. For more, please check out MeganMegan.com. And please be sure to stick around at the end of today's show for a special treat. Megan has lent us the title track off of her CD, Breathe. So for all those reasons and many more, I'm truly delighted to welcome one of the best singer-songwriters working today, Megan McDonough. Megan, thanks for joining me on Storybeat. Steve, I am so happy to be here. And what a delightful introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> oh, well, it was my pleasure. And I'm so glad you're with me today. So, okay, let's go back in time. You've been performing for a little while now. How did all this musical magic begin? When did you first say to yourself, hmm, I might want to be a singer? Oh, my gosh. I remember the day and the moment, you know, being the seventh of nine kids. Wow. And, uh, you know, with a name like Mary Megan Margaret McDonough. <laughs> You know, no, it is no mystery that, yes, I was raised Catholic, which I like to think explains my intense interest in Buddhism and attraction to men. But so it, there were a lot of us. We weren't all home at once. It's kind of a funny story. But, you know, there was 17 years between families. My, my, my parents had three boys, got married during the Depression, then 17 years, no pregnancies due to, you know, some some things that needed correcting. And uh, then, you know, my mom had a had an operation and boom, boom, boom six more kids. Oh! Um, wow, wow. My parents were both born under the sign of Gemini. So it was like having four parents. And we were always encouraged to uh, be creative, to sing, 
Uh, my mom took us to dance uh, class. She was a, a, an actress and kind of a local celebrity in my little town in Illinois, Crystal Lake. Right. Um, and so we were exposed to the theater. My parents started a theater in Crystal Lake called Twilight Ridge, hmm. which was, Steve, it was a tent. It was like a, you know, big circus tent. And I remember the first play I saw, I was just, I was little, um, the importance of being earnest. Right. And um, my dad was the, you know, uh, producer and my mom was in it and you know it was a community it was community theater but really uh, Crystal Lake at that time it was about 50 miles from, uh, outside of Chicago and it was it was a cottage sort of cottage town you know people summer summer cottage town and and um, but it was a, it was a little pocket of really creative bright um people artistic types artistic, yeah artistic community so um i i loved singing right from the get-go and would hear my mom singing my mom uh was a singer and toured with the uso uh and you know she was always singing there was always music uh and we were always like running the woods and making stuff up and dancing and singing and which was also a way of to get some attention. <laughs> sure. So you grew up in a really creative family. It almost sounds like you were grew up in an Andy Hardy movie. Yeah, ex <laughs> exactly. Um, with Cuddy Sark uh, as a <laughs> as a central character. Um, but um, and I was in the basement of our house, uh, and the TV was on in the corner. But I was practicing. Uh, I was in my, my little leotard and tap shoes, was five, and I was practicing all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, that I was going <laughs> to sing at the St. Thomas the Apostle Christmas pageant. Um, and all of a sudden, I hear this sound, <laughs> it's the Woody Woodpecker Show. And honestly, I don't know why, Steve, but I was like, what is that? The sound, uh, and, and I, I looked it up, of course, later, years ago, Grace Stafford was, mm -hmm. was the voice of Woody Woodpecker and sang the, the theme song. And Ho Howard Lance, I think, was, was the creator of Woody Woodpecker. Uh, Walter Lance. Walter Lance. Thank you. Um, Walter Lance, and she was married to Walter Lance, and he was looking for, I love this story, she was looking, he was looking for the voice of Woody, and she anonymously submitted her, her tape. I, I don't know how that, I, I love the romance of that, you know, that mm -hmm. he didn't know was her, um, but uh, he hired her to be the voice of Woody, and she never wanted her name in the credits because she didn't want boys and girls to be disappointed that Woody's voice was a girl. Oh, wow. But anyway, different day and age, different day and age, right? That that's a long way around that. I, I was sure it was my mom almost in a way, because it was that sort of forties, fifties, uh, romantic, uh, clear, um, Ah, da, 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 right, right. lighthearted. Um, 
and and from that moment on, it was like Woody himself was sort of um, annoying to me, <laughs> but there was something that pulled me in. It was in the old days of black and white, and he was on um, Walter Lance's desk, and they figured out how to do that, and he was making Walter Lawrence laugh. And I thought, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to sing and be funny. And, and so that is what you've done. But uh, so you, you intentionally set out to be that. I, I think so. I think that's where it started in that moment of oh, what is that? And how do I, how do I get there? It was the same when I was nine or 10 and saw the Beatles, mm-hmm. everything else faded from the room. It was that February night, the Ed Sullivan show is on and I'm, you know, on my tummy and I'm, I'm, uh, there's nothing else. There's only the Beatles. And so what did you do then to, to, to learn how to do that? What did you do to, to train to be funny and a singer? Right. So I would, um, I would do the cat for my family. I would imitate um, the neighborhood Tomcat. Right. Peals of laughter. Meg, do the cat. Do the cat. Okay. So Meg would do the cat and I would, <laughs> I would imitate this cat. They would laugh. Steve, I'm in. I, I, I'm totally a hundred percent in, and I, and it was just, I, I, it was my calling. And well, then, it's, it's, it's a, it's a kind of drug. Oh my God. Are you kidding me? We've heard many times, you know, so many comics, you know, had, had trauma and, and, and right, right. You know, that, that's why they w- went into it. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the most healing addiction in a way. And then we'll, we'll talk maybe a little bit later about how that can flip, how, sure. how it can go from heart to head. Well, that's, you know, the story about most clowns and comedians, like you say, come from some kind of trauma uh, or sadness or whatever that would be uh, and turn that around and make comedy out of it. And, exactly. and most comedy, I mean, the old phrase is comedy is tragedy plus time. Right. And, so there, there, there you go. So when I listen to you sing, I can tell that it, it means something to you. You have passion about it. And so how much would you say that passion factors into what you do? 90%. 90, 90%. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you, there are singers and then there are singers. Tony Bennett is like born to the breed. Right. Um, yeah. I'm also born under the sign of Scorpio and they say we're very passionate about everything, which yeah. can be annoying. <laughs> well, it might be annoying, but it actually has, uh, it has that sting to it. That's why you're Scorpios. You know? yes. so there's a little bit of zots to that. Well, well said. <laughs> zots. I don't, get to, I don't get to work the word zots in that. that often, I, so. I love it. I love it. It's clearly Yiddish. Yes. Zots, I don't know if Zots is a Yiddish word, but it certainly sounds like it. So let's just say it for the sake of the argument that it is. I think Uh, it'd be a great name for a band. It very well might be a Yiddish word. Um, So uh, for many, music is a calling. Did you, did it feel like a calling to you? Like you had to do it? It was your thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I often say, you know, Ringo saved me from a life in the convent. 
because <laughs> at the time I loved the Beatles, the nuns were kind of starting to recruit me. You know, I was asked almost on a daily basis, who here wants to be a priest or a nun? And I was sure, you know, if I didn't raise my hand, it would go on my permanent record. You know, Mary didn't raise her hand. We got to mm. work on her. Mm. And also the nuns wouldn't call me Megan because it wasn't a saint's name. Interesting. Yeah. So, but and, Mary and Margaret. I, yeah, yeah. Mary. Right. So, so uh, my parents had to give me the first name of Mary. So my name is Mary Megan Margaret. Oh, Mary Megan. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and I was sure that I, I probably should want to be a nun and I probably would be a nun. And then I saw the Beatles and I'm telling you, I was not going to be a nun. I was going to marry Ringo. Well, that didn't work out so well, but, but, but the rest of it did. So at what moment did you then think to yourself, I can do this and make money at it. I can become a professional. <laughs> I wish I'd had that thought that I can do this and make money at it. I begged <laughs> my parents daily for a guitar after I saw the Beatles. I, I hocked their trinic like camp guitar, 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 guitar. All I want is guitar. <laughs> um, and uh, I got the guitar of uh, the following Christmas. It was, it was. How, how old? I was 11. And that's when you started to write songs. Yep. I, 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 I taped my fingers so I could keep playing. It was, it was an obsession. Uh, it, I, I, and I made stuff up. I, I just made up chords. Um, and so you had no training on it. You just started playing it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so that's, that's a natural gift. Not everybody can do that. I've, that sp I've spoken to many people on this show who just pick it up. They just do it. Right. And, and I'm grateful every day. My, my best friend, Sid, we were, we had a folk duo. Um, she played baritone ukulele. And then she got a guitar. And then I, because we were both Beatle maniacs, um, uh, she, she got a guitar and I thought, oh, I got to get a guitar now. Sid's got a guitar. I need a guitar. She taught me a couple chords before moving, um, moving away. And I took it everywhere. I slept with it. I, <laughs> I kissed it. I, I, I'm, I'm telling you, I was, it, it just fell apart. It came unglued uh, about six months later because you know, it was it was this cheap K guitar, but it was golden to me. I wish I still had it, but you know, Mr. Bleece, God love him, at the music store in, in Crystal Lake where I bought it, um, glued it back together for me, and and I kept playing, and then I started taking it everywhere, and you know, everybody go, there goes McDonough with her guitar, and I would play it your dinner party, or Sid and I would you know sing for your guests or. Any, any chance I got, I would, I would play and sing. So you, and my assumption is growing up in a family that was theatrical to begin with, you had no trepidations about standing up in front of people and performing. Nope. It was in your blood already. Yep. yep. I had so, already been doing the cat for years. Right. So this, this notion of I'm now going to sing in front of people, that didn't mean anything right. to you in terms of nervousness or I'm not, can't do this or anything like that. Right, right. And, and, and that, that comes from, I think that comes from love. Love Just of the music? Love of the music and, and really loving people in a way of, of that. That would be maybe my love language. Well, I think it's a love language of lots of people. Um, right. 
All right. So now the the Beatles, which for my money, I agree with you. They're the greatest uh, rock and roll band ever, and certainly maybe the arguably the greatest songwriters of all time, um, from from my perspective. Um, but there had to have been others. Who else inspired you back then? Oh, um, Sid recommended the Pete Seeger's Guitar Guide. Pete Seeger's. Right. So I got way into folk music because really I knew, though I wanted to be uh, in the Beatles in a way, I knew that I wasn't going to get in the Beatles. <laughs> it was probably a you, given. You, you and no one else, except, <laughs> except Yoko, I guess. Except Yoko, or, and, you know, maybe George Martin being the fifth Beatle. But yes. I, but I wanted to do that. I wanted to write songs and, and um, you, you know, the, the traumatic uh, events that followed uh, that Christmas guitar uh, was that next summer, my father died suddenly. Uh. And uh, then three months later, uh, my oldest sister uh, was killed in a car accident. Oh, my goodness. And so, and how old were you then? 11, 12? 11. Yeah. Still 11. Still 11. That's a lot to process at 11. Yeah. Too, too much. And, and I think too much uh, responsibility then falls to keep the last adult standing, you know, and um, do everything you can to be okay. But take, I had the gift of the music. So you so you moved into that as your solace. It was just a just a, did a swan dive into the music. Just poured everything into holding that guitar and just pouring everything. You know, even rocking, even physically rocking with it. Um, it was incredibly healing, and you know the veil was 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 pierced. And uh, I got an insight into life is, wow, there's, this is a big decision time. The lack of fairness of life was ever present. It was just incredible. And talk about angry. Also, a place for, for all of it to go was in the writing, the, the poetry, the poetry, the poetry, the playing, the singing, the not so much singing for a little while and then getting back into it because really my mom was was lost and, and especially financially it was 1965 mm. um talk about a different time um so, so the po i want to go back a second the poetry this is poetry you're writing or other yes, people's poetry right. this is poetry i'm writing and um, Cahil Gibran's, uh, Gibran's um, Prophet is, is on the table. Leaves of Grass is available. Um, so, because, you know, my mom was, my parents were, were sort of, well, they were so creative, but, but also um, hip, kind of hip and, and uh, uh, well, they were artists. Creative. They were creative people. Yes. Yes, though my father was, you know, had an electronics firm in the city and, you know, he would take the commuter to work and. Um, but clearly yeah. had an artistic bent and, and an interest in it. So that makes sense that there yeah. would be that sort of material around. Right. Um, they, they weren't just, you know, technical people. They were artistic. Right. Well, so I got a babysitting job, you know, but but my first, but I was first like, sort of propelled into performing 
started getting gigs and and then I I won the the contest. I was writing songs. I won the WLS WLS in Chicago Big Break Radio contest. And I was up against bands and other singers, and it was at Carnegie. I mean, at uh, Orchestra Hall, and I won first place. I was a folk singer. <laughs> the, the prizes were the the recording contract with Mercury Records, Ludwig drums. I won Ludwig drums like Ringo's. I was I, I was glopped. I. <laughs> Uh, a big Gibson amp, a guitar. I mean, was it an electric guitar? No, it's a 12 string guitar, an echo 12 string. It was amazing. And that was like the beginning of here we go. And and so, you okay. So you've been, after you started to do that, you, you had got this record deal. You actually cut a, cut a record, which is a, I'm sure a, yes, huge right. deal. a 45, uh, a 45, but I'm saying at that time that for, at your age, that had to have been a very big deal. At Universal Studios. At Universal Studios. In Chicago, yeah. In Chicago. And, and okay, so as you're going along, at what point do you think to yourself, hmm, this is something I can do for my life? Is there a, a juncture then or years later when you, when you thought this is something I can do? No, it was just, this is what I'm here to do. Or this is what I wish I'd, I wish I had in a way. I wish I had, I wish there had been that time. I also wish there had been someone to say, do you want to do this? Do you want to, you know, I really don't feel like I had a choice. There were, you know. Well, that's, that's important that you say that you felt like you had no choice. I think most uh, great artists don't have a choice. Right. Which reminds me, you know, one of my one of my favorite writers is Stephen King. And and he, when when asked, he gets asked the question, why, you know, you have all these talents. Why do you write this material, this horror material? And his response is what makes you think I have a choice? And that's what you're right. saying. You, you just don't. That's what you do. Exactly. I, I totally understand. Uh, OK, so I want to talk about performance and how you get into performance for a moment. Um is there a genre of songs? I know you do various genres. You're, you're good all over the map a little bit. Um, are there songs that most appeal to you? Is there something that if I said you, you're, you really are only going to be able to sing this, would there be a genre that you would always go to? I, I'm astonishing myself when I tell you this answer. I think it would be country music. <laughs> Interesting. I love, I love Broadway. I love jazz standards. Those are really soulful for me, though, you know, heart and soul music. The craft of country songwriting. Now, I'm, I, but I'm talking, I'm talking about the house that built me, that mm -hmm. Miranda Lambert made, is so well crafted, you know, and it's so, but it appeals to me because, you know, I loved the house I grew up in and sort of lost the house I grew up in. Right. So, any songs that go right to that place, you know, it's like, Foomp, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, this is so satisfying. Sondheim, so satisfying. Deep you into know? the heart. De deep into the heart and so tidy, so very tidy and mm. well, well constructed. 
well-constructed, well-crafted, beautiful. I love the language and I love the language. And when the language and the music marry and it's perfect like that, I don't know. It just, it makes everything okay. Well, you're a songwriter too. Uh, you know what it's like to write a song. Sometimes things come out of you and flow. And sometimes it's days and days of batting your head against the wall, right? Right. And do you have that experience also, oh, right? Oh, sure. Many times. <laughs> many, many times. And, and uh, but when it comes together, it's, oh. it's uh, glorious. It is a, it's a little click or it's a little, huh, or your heart sits down. That's an African expression. My heart sat down. Mm. You know, it's like, and, and you know this, I, I, I love that you know this feeling of, I remember writing a song called uh, Oh Mary, Just a Girl about how, you know, the Blessed Mother was, I think, maybe 14 when she had Jesus. You know, here she is. She's on the desert with Joseph and she's just a girl. And I, I had never had this experience before since I started crying as I was writing. Hmm. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. That I've never had. And now I don't, I don't consider myself a religious person, right? but there are, there are aspects of the, the religion I was raised in that are quite beautiful. I, I love beauty. You know, well, spirituality. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That, and and the story was sort of a download. The story was sort of like a. Have you ever had that experience? Where where it just sort of just drops in. Yes. Yes, I've certainly had that. Where I've had the experience where it just flows out, and I've had the experience where nothing comes, and you have to work at <laughs> and work and work it, and and I've had that experience where you you working and you're working and you don't think you're ever going to solve the problem. And then one word turns the whole thing and you go, Oh, there it is. And it all falls into place. That, that is such a, a mystical thing. Man. Oh, well, totally. Do you feel like many artists do and many creative people, not just artists, but scientists and all sorts of creative people. Do you feel like the creativity that you have that you express whether it's as a writer or a singer or whatever, is coming through you that you're a vessel for it rather than you're the creator of it? Yes. And that's the distinction between, hmm, I'm pretty cool, which is a trap, which as soon as I think I'm doing it, mm -hmm. it, it eludes me. Sure. Well, that I would say that that's true for a lot of really successful creative people. That, and I hear that repeatedly on this show and, and in the, the world that um, really creative people frequently feel like they're not doing it. Something is coming through them. Without a doubt. Without and, a doubt. and so you have that experience as well. All right. Aside from performing, is there anything you do to develop your singing voice? Breath. Breath. What, what does that mean? So how do you how I, do you do that? Teach, when I teach voice, I say, you're going to be so bored with the first lesson or two wax on wax all, off all we're going to talk about is how you're breathing mm -hmm. first thing to go whenever we're nervous and, and i tell this especially to performers is like first thing to go is <gasps> your breath <gasps> you stop you mm -hmm. stop because all your energy is uh, just be in your feet, man. As Uta Hagen said, you know, just be in the feet of your character, be in your feet, be in your body. And that takes such focus. 
So and, I would say breath first. And like actors, the one of the keys to great acting, at least as I understand it, is um, being able to relax. And slow down. Slow down. I, I don't know if you've had this experience, but it's like I've heard myself in performance. I'm talking entirely too fast. I'm, I'm so jazzed. I'm so adrenalized. I'm so ramped up. I'm like, oh, if I could go back and just say, slow down. Well, the only way that you really get there, I think if that's your nature, and I have a similar nature where I talk too fast. Um, I think the only way that you actually get to the point that you're talking about is by doing a lot of it to where it's, there's a second nature aspect to it. No doubt. We've both put in our 10,000 hours. Would you say? Oh. Oh, easily. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I was telling you before this, uh, last night I went to go see a band who's playing a club that I'm going to play next week. Right. And they're young. They're a family band. Uh, three, three members of a family and their guitar player was the, the only outsider. It was so sweet. It was so sweet. I, I loved it because I think that might be coming back that, that young people would have a place to play. Their music was good, you know, and it was so right now. And, and it, they were so perfectly young. I mean, I think I, I told you, I think the lead singer was, you know, 17 or 18. Her sister, the songwriter who sang backup was 21. Her brother on keyboards was 20. The guitar player was 19. You know, it's just like, oh, I think we might be okay in the world. You know, the kids are still doing this. They're still writing songs. They're still, you know, um, but I, I noticed that there were things they were doing that could, that were perfect for right now. And they can't learn any other way by just constantly doing it. Just keep showing up. You know, the yoga teachers, the, the yogis say, just show up at the mat, just keep showing up at the mat, just yep. stay on the mat, you yep. know, just keep showing up. If you just keep showing up and, and do it because you gotta, because you, you know, it's in you. I wish I had found a way to keep that. And uh, I wish I'd been a better business person. Well, that's a that's yet a whole other skill set that many exactly. people in the in the arts do not have, or don't, or or just didn't get trained in, or had no interest in one of those things, and you hear about people that get taken advantage of all the time by unscrupulous individuals who do know that kind of stuff, and hopefully you can find somebody to help you along the way. I mean, yes. that's that yeah. if you if it's not your thing, and right. and some do. Um, I do think it's interesting that there was this marvelous uh, institution for a long time called vaudeville where people could work themselves out and, and perform in front of crowds. Yeah. And that went away and it got really hard for people to find something like it. And now we have not vaudeville, but in a weird way, a kind of vaudeville, which is the internet where everything's yes. out there. And, and now you can, I love that. you can, you can perform and you can put it in front of people and they can give you feedback. Now it's not exactly the same as being in front of a live audience, but right. nevertheless, there is feedback. You get criticism and thoughts and all the rest of it. Um, all right. So when you're preparing material for, for your shows, um, do you select that material thinking about the audience or are you selecting it for yourself? Kind of both. 
but mostly for myself. It's what do I want to express? Because chances are, you know, my demographic, especially, you know, is going to dig it. Um, you feel like your your take on the world is reflective in the audience's world. I do. I do. And um, yeah, I, I don't give, maybe I don't give enough thought to, hmm, who's going to, who's going to dig this? Because <laughs> when I was in high school and starting to sing, I would just go to like the student council and say, hey, you want, you want me to do a concert and we can raise some money for prom? Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I just, I just thought, well, what if you put this with this and just, and sort of, and I also had, um, you know, a mom who was, uh, who was in the business and, and she was just sort of like, I mean, some days it was, uh, you know, shine Louise and other days it was like, yeah, you can do this. You can, you know, uh, I'll take you here and take you there. And, you know, what I was about 12 and my mom had gone back into the theater, um, after my dad died and, and, uh, and she would take me with her, not, she would often take us kids because we didn't have a babysitter. She would take us to the theater with her, but she would take me to, uh, a piano bar on Rush Street called Punchinello's. Right. I was about 12 years old. <laughs> and Sammy Sadler was the pianist and, and she would sing. And there were these tall women with huge hair and lots of makeup. And everybody was <laughs> talking theater. And it was like, cool. How, how great is this? And then, you know, and then we drive back out to Crystal Lake and, it was a different world. It was a different experience. Sure. But the, the, the marvelous theater that I was exposed to as a kid just really set my thermostat. Right. Right. At a really good place later in life though, when, when I had to reset my thermostat and go back and, or go forward or what do I do now? And, you know, um, the business changes and then am I, am I going to audition? Am I going to just keep doing it's, it's big. And you have to sometimes find your way through that, that slight fog of what is it? Uh, And, and that's what it sounds like it happened for you is you had to sort of find your way to where you wanted to be. Absolutely. As opposed to it just being obvious. It wasn't obvious at all to you. Every every now and then it was really clear. Like when I joined Four Bitch and Babes, I you know I had just met my uh, husband, and we we were got engaged. I, I don't know. I just met my husband to be, and uh, I got a call from Chris Lavin saying, "Hey, Christine Lavin, who I had met in 1977 in Aspen, Colorado." And she had heard my first wooden nickel LP. Um, a friend of hers, had, she was stuck in his apartment in Florida on a rainy day and she was going through his albums and she put my, this album on. She said, I stopped playing anything else. I just kept listening to this album. And I was like, so touched. Wow. Anyway, I'm, I'm singing it at, at, at uh, um, uh, Richard's at the Jerome, the Jerome Hotel downstairs in the club. And Chris Lavin is, is in Aspen opening for a sleep at the wheel. 
And she and her boyfriend are walking past the Jerome and they see my picture and she goes, it can't be the same girl. She said, I got it. We got to go in. Sure enough, she sits down. There's hardly anybody in this club. You know, it's the summer. It's the winter of no snow. So there's not anyway. She starts requesting songs from my first LP. And I'm like, this, per- this person is not a, a, a sibling of mine. <laughs> who, who could? So I, I met her after she introduced herself after the show. We're, we're both Irish Catholic girls from families of nine kids. You know, we're both folk singers. She's in New York. I was, I was in LA or in Chicago for years. And we just hit it off beautifully. Fast forward to 1980. Gosh, this was... 88, 89, 89. And uh, she says, Meg, I'm, I'm, uh, I've got some carpal tunnel weirdness going on. And, and I got this string of California gigs. How about if you come along on tour, uh, Sally Fingerette and Patty Larkin are also coming. We'll just go and we'll, and, and you guys can, you know, join me on stage. This was the birth of the babes, you know, wow. this is the and babes. And uh, God, Steve, we lost our shirts. We lost our blouses on that door. I mean, because <laughs> Chris was, you well, know, that should have brought you lots of money. <laughs> <laughs> Later on, actually, we, we made some money, you know, mm-hmm. um, we got, we, uh, we were at the Birch Mirror and it was a Billy Wolf. The sound man put a, a DAT recorder in and, and recorded our set. That rounder just thought was splendid. They released uh, Buy Me, Bring Me, Take Me, Don't Mess My Hair. Uh, <laughs> or Bitch and Babes live at the Birchmere. That, <laughs> that really took off. And uh, so there were five more uh, albums with, with the babes after that. I toured with them for, um, gosh, 12 13 years. Wow. So, all right. So when you have a new song that you're going to develop, whether for the four bitch and babes or on your own, um, and you have, this is a song, it's either an established well-known standard or it's something you've written brand new. Nobody's ever heard before. Um, what is your routine to develop that song as a singer? What, what do you go through? How do you think your way through that? Two stories come to mind. This happening really taught me a great lesson. You, do you co-write? All the time. Okay, that's what I thought. So I came to co-writing um, early on in the 70s. I started writing with, with my friend, Tom Bishop. And every now and then I co-write. And it's, it's always uh, quite an experience. But uh, I was invited to a songwriting retreat uh, in May, uh, several years ago, uh, uh, in, in Scottsdale by um, the Empower Music and Arts uh, family that I know. Um, they're, they're new thought singer-songwriters and really great artists, really good songwriters. Um, and they said, We're, we want to get together and write Christmas songs, holiday songs, holiday songs, winter sure, songs. Sure, sure. And it's May. So, and Sue Riley, brilliant uh, uh, boss of a, of a person, would put it all together. She she puts the retreat together. She and Richard McDacey put the retreat together. And then she has a whole schedule of who you're going to write with at what time. So it was like, very cool. So one day I look at the schedule and I, at one o'clock, I'm going to write with J.D. Martin. Now, J.D. Martin and his wife, Jan Garrett, badass singer-songwriters. Right. Badass. 
Just fantastic. J.D. spent many years in Nashville and is a splendid songwriter. Here's my thought. I better really have a good idea and a good song before I even get in the room with J.D. Sure. Now, this is this is ego talk. This is like this is sort of and it's sort of shame talk of whatever I don't know. I don't want you to know that I don't know. (laughs) So I'm just going to make something up. Okay, because I want I don't want you to know that I don't know, but I don't know. (laughs) So I get to the (laughs) I get to the session and uh, I'm nervous and I say, so I've got this idea and he goes, oh, okay, cool. What do you got? And I play it for him and he goes, well, you know, that's really good. But why don't we just like talk and see what what's going on and. And uh, so I said, well, you know, he says, how's your life? I go, shit, I'm going through a divorce. And he said, oh God, I've been there. And the song that came out of that conversation is one of the best songs I've ever written. Mm, and wow. Song. wow. Yeah. Uh, I will send it to you when it, it came from a real place. So it came from it came from a real place that I didn't see coming. Well, it might've been that you were trying not to see it at that moment. Yeah. And I, uh, so when I, when I teach songwriting, I say, just start with an empty, you know, just start with Zen mind, beginner mind. Don't, don't let it come to you. And any idea, you know, uh, we'll, we'll do some object writing or, you, you know, or we'll do, we'll do some, or we'll take a, uh, we'll take twinkle, twinkle, little star and, and rewrite, you know, once you know the, the, the parameters, once you know the, what you need, the syllables, etc., and the melody, uh, write different lyrics. Okay. There is a way to prime the pump. There's a way to prime the pump, but so that's over here. There'll be a, there will be a, a time when a, a line will come to me. And it, it always, it doesn't always happen, but if I'm doing something else, if I'm in the moment, then it might come. If I don't catch it, like, um, Steve, have you read this book or do you know this book, Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert? No, but no, don't know that book. I didn't either. Big magic. Big, big magic. She talks about how grabbing the 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 idea and and working with it because <laughs> she talks about the poet. I wish I could remember her name. Who who got the thought and was running to the house to her pen, you know, as if as the as the thought of the poem was you know was just about to pass her by right that you have to grab when it when it comes and write it down don't think you're going to remember it cuz you're not do you carry some form of recording device with you i do my phone your phone yeah, i put uh, it on my phone now prior to having this the cell with you what did you do did you carry paper uh yes yeah paper or you know constantly you know repeating it getting it in getting it in getting home getting yeah, it down because if you if you don't get it down it's going to go away it's for wrong. most people for most people unless you have a, a perfect memory right right 
um, it is a mystical experience every time, even when I'm working at it. Even uh, I, I wrote a song called God Spoils Me <laughs> uh, based on a story told to me by this woman, uh, Paula Ryan. Great story. Uh, that inspired me, inspired me to write this song. And if I, and I was with um, uh, NSAI, uh, Nash Nashville Singer, uh, Songwriters Association. Um, and they, at a time where they, they would critique your songs. Sure. You know, so I sent it in and they had, they had an idea. And I said, so then about the fourth time I thought, damn, I've never worked so hard on a song in my life. Just <laughs> one, just one, you know, just moving this here, uh, not taking this out because I don't know that. <laughs> Again, it was, it was Nashville. I don't know. I just have a lot of um, respect for that kind of work. The hard work that comes with crafting a song, because a lot of my songs were just close enough. Maybe if I'd worked on them, but again, it wasn't till I was like advanced and was doing more of it that uh, I got that feeling. You know, you know that. Feeling. Which comes first for you usually? Music, lyrics, uh, hook. What, what yeah, usually comes? The 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 line. The, the hook. Yeah, the hook. And and once you have that, then suddenly the music will come along with it. Yeah. And from that, then then come the the full lyrics. Right. You're not, you don't tend to write like you did when you were writing poetry. You don't right. tend to write the whole lyric out and right. then try to fit the music to it. Right, right. Yeah. So that's, that's always a mystery. When I was working on Jekyll and Hyde, it was always music first. That's just the way that Frank worked. Yes. Always music first. And sometimes it came off a hook and sometimes it just came off of wherever he was at that moment. Um, yes. So creating music requires both mental and physical skills and an artistic understanding, you know, but yeah. it's mainly about, I think, passion and creating emotion. It's about emotion. How do you tap into your emotional core? What do you do? Mm. Is there anything that you do to, or do you just let it come as may? No, because a lot of times, and this, I, I think this can really put a governor on your creativity. Mm -hmm. A lot of times there's, I didn't want to be overwhelmed by feelings. So I compartmentalized, you know, uh, instead of letting it, letting it come up whenever I, whenever I said, I'm not ready to really go there. What I love about your situation is, is that your divine appointment with Frank was, I wish I'd been a better musician because I had to, I feel like I had to sort of play catch up with, with the music to the lyrics. I think I'm a lyricist first and a, and a musician uh, second. Um, and, and I feel good about the, the connections I've made, but a lot of times um, I'm, if I'm not ready to really go deep, into into something and how do you, how deep do I have to go? A, a song I, I will let a song pass me by. I will I will let. You that, ever come back? You ever come back to it? Every now and then, 
and it's interesting. I've been working on one for a couple months. It's so close and it's really good. And I keep going back to it and I keep trying to, it's like holding a bird. I don't want to hold it so tightly that I harm it, but I don't want to hold it so loosely that it flies away. Right. There's that, mm, that, that uh, it's almost finished, but gosh, I, I think, is it gone? Darn it. Darn it. Did I, did I not pay it enough attention? Did I, did I, did I blow it? And then I was like, calm down this is your song and it's not it's not a science it's a you have to feel it you have to feel that it's right or not and sometimes you feel like oh that's finished there's no more to do to it and sometimes you feel like there's something else not quite right here what do you do what do you do keep working (laughs) turn it you just keep working it. That's, I mean, I, I don't think there, I mean, you can always abandon something, but I think there's no substitute for when you're, when you don't think it's right to keep working it. That of course calls up the question of collaboration. Um, you've collaborated with people and you know that sometimes you have to compromise in a collaborative setting where it isn't what you think is a hundred percent right. Right. Yeah, well, that's just the nature of collaboration is, is that it, there's, there's a, an aspect of, of compromise to it. And trust. Well, I certainly trust. Otherwise, right. the, you'd have nothing. But, uh, you, you know, sometimes you don't get 100% of what you want when you're working with others. When you're on your own, like when you write a song wholly yourself, then that's true. you get to write it exactly the way you want it. And it doesn't come out to show to anybody until you're ready. Yes. That's true. Uh, well, you know, um, so what, when you're actually preparing to do a gig, what is it you go through? Aside from you've now developed the programming of the show, I'm going to sing this song, these songs in this order, um, and it's going to be in this genre of songs. It's, you're now going to do the 60s, 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever you've decided is the thrust of the show. What do you then do? How do you prepare yourself? Do you go into serious rehearsal on your voice? Do you uh, go into arranging music? What is it you do? I first make a set list and so you program the evening. I program the evening and I'll go through the songs and I will, I'll just be marking the first, the first, you know, rehearsal. Mm-hmm. I'll just mark. Um, to go easy on my voice. Right. Um, then I'll, you know, I'll warm up. Um, but I won't, again, I, it's the bird. Um, you don't want to squeeze it to death. Right. So I, I rehearse. I let it go. It's good. How do you feel? I rarely um, rehearse um, uh, dialogue you know, because... Do you write it out? Do you know what you're going to say? Yeah, I, I have an outline. Um, but you're not memorizing script. You're not memorizing no. specific lines. No, because every gig is going to be different and it's going to have its own, what it wants me to to say. Do you enjoy doing that where you're sort of riffing or improvising? I love improv, love. It has from time to time gotten me into trouble, but uh, you know, hey. <laughs> That's improv. Well, if you're going to walk the tightrope, you're going to get into trouble every once in a while. Oh, 
Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. That's the hey, that's half the fun, Probably, right? Well, well, sure it is. What is that your favorite thing about performing? Is the interaction with the audience? Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. And just just being able to sing. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was, I would say, for about a year before the pandemic, I think I was trying to break. <laughs> break up with my life and I didn't know how I was break like, up with your life I was like <laughs> oh my god this is so boring what the hell you know um <laughs> I don't want to do this I don't want to you know more than uh, once in my life I thought if I could only get away from me yeah exactly exactly oh man <laughs> um and then uh the pandemic hit mm-hmm I was like, okay, this is my chance. It is. is it was a chance. great chance for people. Sit down. <laughs> Just sit down. There is nothing to figure out here. I did my last gig. It was a singer-songwriter gig with, with three other singer-songwriters. It was a fun gig uh, in a new club in Chicago. And on March 12th, on March 13th, I was quarantined. Yeah, and that's how it worked. Place. It was right in there. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And a lot of my friends were like, man, you got to get on Instagram Live. You've got to get on Facebook. You've got to start doing some online concerts. And I'm like, my, my heart was saying, I'm not doing that. You, you were in reset mode. Oh, total reset. Total I, and then John Prine passed and it was, it was like one of the only times I, I uh, posted my singing uh, Angel from Montgomery. Right. I was just like so sad and um, that felt right. And I did a couple gigs for Unity um, uh, service, Unity Church service, uh, where they, you know, I did the music for, for their service. But I got to tell you, man, I just, I took, I took a year and, and hit the reset button. Came did up did you keep button. singing though, even in private? Yes. I, I, a, a little bit. You kept working your bit. voice. You kept it lubricated. I my voice. Um, but there were a couple months there where it was like, mm, no, I, 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 I had no, I, I'm sure I was depressed. I'm sure I was like, like everybody else, like what? What? Well, well, we didn't know if we were ever going to come out of the backside of it. We still don't know right. as we're having right. this interview today. Exactly. Um, we still don't know whether we're coming out of the backside of it. Um, it's it's uh, having fits and, and spurts in yes. terms of whether it's uh, coming alive or not. Um, and that just makes it very, very challenging. When you would take time off on singing or any of that kind of work, when you would start to sing a little bit, did you have any issues with your voice? Or oh, gotcha. You, yeah, you that, that freaked me out. I'm like, oh, okay, Miss Sure of Herself. You're gonna have this is this is a gift. This is not for there's no playing around here, sister. You this is a muscle. It's a muscle, and you have to keep working the muscle. Yeah, you do. Otherwise, yeah. the muscle goes uh, f flat. And I I taught voice over. I, I'm on faculty at the Music Institute of Chicago. I was teaching voice and songwriting. I want to tell you, there is nothing more frustrating than teaching, trying to teach voice via Zoom. Oh, I, 
I would, uh, yeah, I'm sure that's incredibly frustrating. I mean, I've taught a lot of writing via Zoom. Right. Uh, but I'm sure that there's, it's really frustrating. But imagine trying to teach someone to be a director. Oh, God. You, you can't. I mean, it's almost impossible. Wow. I'll tell you what, I have a friend, Jimmy Corain, um, who had a, a, had a really successful podcast called Improv Nerd. And Jimmy figured out a way. He's a great improv teacher, and I've taken his class a couple of times. But, you know, it comes from the, the Second City lineage, man, you know. But he found a way to teach improv online. Wow, nice. I'm like, oh, brother, I... I'm not worthy. If you, you know, if you can teach improv online, man, you, you, you will rule the day. It, well, especially if you run into any kind of tech issues, because uh, it's all about timing, isn't it? It's Absolutely. Hitting, hitting, hitting those times. Uh, even in improv, you still have to have timing. Uh, exactly. And uh, clearly you have good timing, both in terms of music and in terms of delivery of lines. So, well, thank you. I, I, I love, I, I have a passion for, I would say it's my, it's right up there with singing, um, is, is uh, comedy, improv. I, I just, it's, oh, it's do a Do you life think story. about it or do you just do it? No, I just, I, I try. Because if I think about it, oh God, it's a horrible yeah, I, it, it, it is. I mean, obviously, you have to be able to write and tell a joke, which many people can do, but many, many more can't. Uh, and you still have to understand how it works somewhat, even if you don't have it academically in mind. And that is heart centered as well as noggin. You know, that's really the the what I call the divine intersection, you know, between head and heart is, is your voice. But um, and, and don't you find, and, and you probably tell your students this, Steve, that to, oh, oh man, to get out of your head, but to stay present, that's, that's the, well, that's, that's, uh, everything in terms of performance for sure is being, is being present and in the moment. Um, and, and yeah, it's really hard when people get caught up in their own heads. I, when I get caught up in my own head, it's a problem. It's, it's an inevitable. And when, how were you during, during the early days of the pandemic creatively? I mean, how did you? Me personally? Yeah. Um, well, of course, this is not my episode, but right. <laughs> uh, suffice to say, I actually got locked. I got locked up. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't read. I couldn't think. I I, I was barely able yeah. to just sit there and watch TV, um, and I you know pottered pottered and roamed around. But I was uh, locked up creatively, and then slowly over time, I kicked myself back out of it. Um, but you have to have that. Here's what it is. I think you have to have, if you're going to be successful in the arts, any part of the arts you have to have a certain amount of self-discipline. And if you don't have that self-discipline, no one is going to provide it for you. Um, and so uh, it's, it's imperative that you have motivation, that you want to do it, that you enjoy doing it, and that you um, feel motivated to, to kick yourself into gear, so, so to speak. Right, right, right. With, yeah. without, it, without it, I think you're, you may as well uh, think about some other career because you you won't be happy what i loved about 
Well, I mean, you might not be happy. Um, <laughs> well, you could I, certainly be successful and unhappy. That's for oh, sure. Oh, gosh, yes. And you can be successful and happy. Both, certainly. It, it can happen. Um, another thing I loved you, about- You can also, by the way, be, if, not to interrupt you, but to be a total failure and be happy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Happiness is from somewhere, some slightly oh, different place. Man, it's an inside job, isn't it? <laughs> what I least. love about uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Big Magic, also is she made a vow to her craft, to her writing. She wanted to be a writer right from Jump Street. She was like, I'm going to I'm going to write. I'm here to write. I wish I had read this years ago, but um, she made a vow to her craft. I will never make you support me. I will always support you. I will never whip you to financially support me. Of, like, the, of the craft itself, you mean? Right, right. She said because she knew a writer who uh, said, listen, I'm out. I can't take the rejection. I'm, I think I'm really good and I'm just, I'm done. I'm, I can't take the depression. And she said, uh, uh, can I can I swear? <laughs> sure, go for it. So she says, it's kind of like a shit sandwich. She said, you've got to pick your shit sandwich. Like which, how, how much of it and which one you're going to eat. She said, when he said, I'm out, I can't take it anymore. I can't take the rejection. I can't take the depression. I'm out. I think I'm good, but I, I'm done. It's as if she... <laughs> She said, it's as if his sandwich was sitting there and she was about to say, are you going to finish that? <laughs> because if, if you don't want to, I will. That's the kind of commitment she was willing to make mm -hmm. to say she, she, she had been a bartender. She had been a waitress. She had been a ranch cook, a ranch hand, because she didn't want to resent her craft. I'm like, oh my God. The times I was like, damn, I gotta, I gotta get some money up in here and I gotta, and I gotta take jobs and I maybe, instead of well, like, wait a minute, what would it be just then get a gig? But see, this is what I meant in the beginning. I wish I'd, I wish I'd known this may not pay the bills every day. So Christine Lavin, perfect example. The woman is a typing banshee <laughs> she, and, she, and, and she's really bright. She went to school. She, you know, she, she, she got a job when she moved to New York, she got a job at Bellevue, I think. Uh, and, and sang at night, sang, sang you know, Saying in a little, a little, a little Mexican restaurant on, on Columbus Avenue, you know, in the evenings. But she had a day job. I'm not saying it can't always support you financially, but if you're going to worry about the money, then it's going to take a lot of mental energy, and and you'll get really discouraged if you're expecting your art to feed you. If you, maybe just for a week, don't go with, you, you know, uh, with a, an open, open hands, like to your craft, maybe just like, maybe just do it just to do it. 
and not. Well, I've, I've told many people many times, it's not for the faint of heart or the weakest stomach. It's a very difficult industry. And unless you come already saddled with immense resources, you're probably going to go through what many people go through, which is a struggle of some kind to support yourself. You have to have it within your being to do that. And if, and otherwise you get the same reaction that you heard, which is, um, I can't handle this anymore. I'm quitting. You can do it. And the only people that um, fail, really fail, are the ones who give up. And the ones who succeed are always the ones that stick it out. Uh, and that's a glittering generality, but it's, it's more or less true. People who stick it I out, agree. generally speaking, get somewhere because they have passion for it and they want to keep doing it. And Elizabeth Gilbert's book, Eat, Pray, Love, was a pretty big, big. success. Yeah. And, you know, she didn't have to wait on tables uh, then, you know. But the willingness, I, I'm sorry, you know, my ex-husband, God love him, was, was a business person. He, he, when he saw my pay stub from Always Patsy Klein, yeah. he said, Megan, this is what they pay you? For eight shows a week, 23, you know, not 23 songs, but 23 sections of, right. uh, of, of singing, you know, he said that he did the math. He said, this is the equivalent of two seats sold a night. He said, so, so, and I said, honey, get out of the business he was in and go into entertainment law because we need you. We need to go into enter entertainment management. But if you don't understand uh, the business, you're, you're, you, it's, it's almost like trying to, tell, <laughs> trying to tell a stranger about rock and roll. I, it, it's just, um, you don't do it for the money and yet you, you need to earn money and, and you need to know what you're worth and what the market will will bear is a very difficult piece of information to get, I think, in the performance. Well, I think anybody that goes into the arts um, for the money has made an error um, because the money may come. You do yes. it because you love it and because it's what you do and because you wish to express yourself. Uh, otherwise, I think you're, you might be on a fool's errand uh, because the chances of your bec becoming wealthy in the entertainment industry is actually quite small. Um, some people can figure out how to get super rich. Some people can figure out how to make a living at it, but most people are nibbling around the edges and, and sometimes making nothing. So you got to want to do it. It's not, and by the way, nobody forces you to do it. It's not oh, like gosh, you're, no. you're not enslaved to it. So if it's not for you, it's not for you. But if it is for you, then you can't think about the money part of it. Other than you, if you're going to earn a living, you're, you're going to make those efforts, but it's not why you do it. It is really, that's difficult to wrap your mind around for it a is. lot of, for a lot of people. It is. A lot of well, people. I have been uh, speaking for the, to the divine uh, Megan McDonough for the last hour and 10 minutes, and we're going to sort of wind this thing toward the conclusion. And so um, I'm just wondering in all of your experiences in the business of show, um, can you share with us a story that's either quirky or offbeat, weird, strange, or maybe just plain funny? Yes. So the story that comes to mind is a manifestation story. 
of bringing something into my experience that I really wanted and didn't even know I wanted. When I was 14, I was Cher. You were Cher? I wanted I was sure. I was sure. I wore my hair long and, you know, I was a little, you know, uh, lots of black eyeliner. I looked like cousin <laughs> it, but I was sure, Steve. And I would, you know, like sing like her and, you know, oh, sure. And I loved Cher. I just thought she was the coolest and I wanted to be her. So I was 15 and I had won the big break contest and I had gotten a lot of press. And I was, I was, um, so I got a call from Sig Sackowitz. Now Sig Sackowitz was a big radio personality in Chicago. And he said, we're taking a tour, a USO tour to Vietnam mm. and want to know if you would like to go. And I'm like, I got to check with my mom. Yeah, I can go. no problem um so he said okay uh come down to my office um on thursday and and we're good because we're gonna um have a meeting about how this will go and what you need to do and i needed to get some shots and stuff so my mom took me down to sig's office and uh we're sitting there and we're talking to Sig about the, about the, the, uh, he said, oh, you know, a couple people who are on the tour are going to stop by there in town, you know, uh, for a concert. We're sitting there and in walks Sonny and Cher. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I, it, it was a kind of not in your body uh, experience. Yes. I'm like, Sure. I know it's like looking in the mirror, right? I mean, oh, it's it's amazing. So we mumbled our hellos, you know, and and um, it was just so unbelievable. And then I went home. I was like high for days. I had met my hero, and then I get a call two weeks before uh, we were supposed to go. I'd gotten my shots. I was ready to go, and uh, Sig's office called and said. We're so sorry. No one under 18 years of age can go to Vietnam. So I was off the tour and I never saw Cher again. (laughs) But I'm telling you, same thing happened to me years later. Uh, I'm recording for Wooden Nickel. I'm living in California. My first album is released. I go to see uh, John Denver at the Troubadour with Jerry Weintraub, uh, our manager and some other people. And I think, oh, wow, really good, man. Peace and love and folk music and granola. And uh, then I, I went home for, uh, for Christmas. I went back to Crystal Lake from California. And um, my, um, oh, I, I'm sorry, I got to back up. Uh, I went on tour um, to promote my first album with Wood Nickel and uh, a friend of ours I was I was in Denver and, and a friend of friend of ours um, was going to school there picked my sister and I who my sister was traveling with me at the time as my road manager took us to Red Rocks Park and uh, if you've ever been to Red Rocks Park it's a, a glorious uh, amphitheater and, and uh, many name acts play there right and so but during the day you can't 
get on the stage, but you can stand on the lip of the stage because it's all closed off. And you can look out and I climb up there in my cowboy boots and I turn around and Steve, this wish flies out of my heart. <gasps> I would like to play here one day. You know, it's just like one of those amazing wishes. So about six months later, I'm at home and uh, I get a call from, from my manager. You're going on tour with John Denver. Wow. Okay. One of the places we played was Red Rocks Park. Yeah, sure. And for him at Red Rocks Park, I did my set. I walked off stage. John walked on, started playing this song, Eagle and the Hawk. And the audience, of course, it's Denver, for God's sakes. The audience is going crazy. And a shooting star arcs over the stage. I'm like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. <laughs> Having those wishes, having those, you know, having just that desire to, oh, I would like to do that. Or, oh, I would like to meet so-and-so. Doesn't always happen, but it's, it comes from a different place than <laughs> when I lost on Star Search in 1980 something um, by a half a star because I, I wanted to go on and yeah, but I could win. And, and it was like all from here and not from here. Yeah. From the head and not from the heart. There's yeah. a big difference. Yeah. And, and it's interesting when you visualized playing Red Rocks, you saw yeah. it and then you got that visualization to come through. Sometimes that's a very important aspect of, of success is visualizing where you're going to go. I love the Michael Beckwith uh, quote. We are pushed by fear or pulled by a vision. Wow, that's very good. Yeah, a vision is really important. And a, and a good vision is even more important. Oh my gosh. Yes, and, 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 and yeah, a spiritual vision of the four questions. Uh, where would you have me go? What would you have me do? What would you have me say and to whom? Because it kind of circles back to that, listen, it can do no more for me than it can do through me. Mm -hmm. As soon as I think I'm doing it, gosh, it'll be okay. And it might be actually good, but it's not going to have the special sauce. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. Uh, um, last question for you today, Megan. Um, do you have a solid piece of advice or a tip for those who are just starting out in the industry in today's world, or perhaps they're in a little bit and trying to get to that next level? Uh, ask for help. Don't do it alone. Don't go rogue. I know you want to because you're smart, but ask for help and, and don't do it alone. And thirdly, I've got to say, just what we were talking about, know where the money is, um, have a vision, have a solid vision of, of where you want to go, and then have a plan. And most of all, know where the money is, how much it's going to take to fund your vision and, and, and just be really mindful of, be mindful of the vision and ask yourself this question. Is this gig, is this move, is this in alignment with what I think I'm here to do? And is it in the direction of my vision? That's great. That's really great. Cause that then sets you on a course, right? And, a plan. With, Have a and, plan. With, 
and you need to you need to have thoughts about the next thing or the next two steps or the next three steps, some kind of a plan. Because if you're just free forming it, sometimes you're just all over the map. And have and and be going someplace. You know, in 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 your teaching, I'm sure you've experienced this. Your character has to has to be coming from somewhere and going somewhere. If you ha- if you have a if you have a, a gig, my, my sister my sister uh, teaches acting uh, uh, in D.C. and on the East Coast. And she says after an audition, <laughs> oh please God, let those come back. <laughs> but after an audition, have somewhere to go because if if your audition is that, if your audition is like just the thing, like because uh, that's fear, that's your fear vibration. But if it's like you're gonna go to the, gonna go to the audition, and then you're gonna meet a friend at Starbucks for coffee, and then you're gonna go home and work on your and, and do your laundry. Have somewhere, have a destination. Don't make the audition. Uh, gotta gotta have because uh, you'll get stuck. Hold it lightly, hold it, take it easy, be in the moment, be in your body, take a breath. So I'll go back to the breath. You're, you're good. Well, that's, that's great because your motivation has got to be just going out and doing it, not ex- having an expectation. Yeah, man. Cause you know what they say about expectations? They're just resentments on the back burner. Ooh. They're just <laughs> the, an expectation is always a resentment waiting to, to, to come on in. And yeah. nothing holds me back more than a, a resentment or a, you know, holding that um, unforgiveness towards self or others. Let yourself off the hook, man. You're okay. You, 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 it's okay. It's okay. You burn the toast. That's okay. Do the work for the work. Yeah. And, and, and don't make it everything. I, you know, I, I was doing it for so long since I was a kid that it became overdeveloped. I didn't develop other things. Oh, take it all in. You know, uh, I love uh, the Jean Houston, the great activist uh, mystic uh, said, you know, she, she was a great cook, but she really needed to start writing and started to write books. And she wanted to, but she was not very good at it. And she thought, what am I really good at? I'm a good, she's a great cook. She's a phenomenal Italian cook. She thought, I'm going to take my cook to the typewriter. I'm going to take, some, take something that you feel really solid in to something new. To like, like you would take, you know, your your work steve to i don't know forestry gardening <laughs> you know something that that you know what do you what do you want to do in pittsburgh tr- tr- trust me it's not forestry <laughs> <laughs> i like i like looking at trees i don't want anything to do with <laughs> taking you? care of them i like trees too man <laughs> well, i like trees too they're, they're they're a they're a necessary and wonderful part of the world yeah so I have been uh, speaking now for almost an hour and 20 minutes to uh, Megan McDonough. And I just think this has been a, just a terrific uh, story beat episode in which we have um, explored so many aspects of the industry and how a person can develop a career. And I think that it's uh, very instructive. And I, I can't thank you enough for joining me today on the show. Thank you, my friend. It's been really fun. Thank and you. as promised, we have a real treat for you. So won't you please sit back and enjoy now Megan's beautiful angelic song, Breathe. 
come to the end of today's story beat. 
If you like this episode, won't you please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great StoryBeat episodes to you. StoryBeat is available on all major podcast apps and platforms, including Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many others. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.